And for the rest of you who want to find your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 17. All right, just a quick question as we get started here. How many of you have ever been blessed with this question? When are you going to grow up? Okay, you ever, anybody, anybody ever hear that besides myself here? Okay, just a few of you. Well, okay, I'll give you a few reminders. For instance, do you ever have your parents ever ask you that? Um, how about like a music teacher, a coach, one of your teachers, a university professor? I mean, am I stirring up some memories here? Like, oh, yeah, I think I, I, I do recall being asked that there. Hopefully it wasn't one of your employers. Okay, but, you know, maybe, maybe you were asked that question. Have you found, if you're a parent, have you ever asked that to your kids? You remember when you said, I'll never, ever ask my kids this, and then what happens? Blah, it just comes flying out of your mouth. There it is. Now, um, hopefully you have never asked this to your spouse, okay? Just... Uh, this is an extra, but a word to the wise, okay? You ask that question to your spouse, it will have the opposite effect, okay? So you don't want to do there. I'm just trying to help you out. But every parent, you know, with their kid, they, they desire that they're going to grow and mature. I mean, that just comes with parenting. And it it kind of starts, you know, with the physical. Remember how, like, you just wanted, like, some sort of physical milestone? Like, we had this video projector, and uh, we were so excited that Ashley might kind of roll over. And so, like, I must have recorded, like, 45 minutes of videotaping just trying to see if I could catch that one moment. And then I remember trying to watch that one time, just trying to endure that. I was like, oh, man, what was I thinking? Okay? But we want to see physical milestones. We want to see our kids just start to take steps of maturity, crawling and walking. But then it doesn't just stop there. We also want to see them take steps with mental development. We're starting to learn things. And then with that, then there's social. We're actually... Learning to relate, they're saying words, you can sense a connection, and, and they're smiling at you, and you believe like we're connecting, and they might even be thinking about something completely different. But we're looking for those kind of social developments, and then we'd like to see emotional attachments and growth and development. And then when you see God starting to work in their heart, you're seeing some of these spiritual steps, growth in relationship with God. And every parent wants to see their kids grow and mature in every single respect. And that shouldn't surprise us then that God desires maturity in his children. That's what he wants. He wants death in his children. And that is why Jesus takes the development of his people so seriously. Jesus is serious about developing maturity in his people. He doesn't want his people to be stay functioning at an infantile level and they develop patterns like maybe they show up at church maybe they don't they they just kind of are flaky they have no discernment they never read the word they don't pray they don't walk in the spirit they don't even know what we're talking about no he desires his people to come to great depths of maturity and this book that we've been saying the gospel of matthew this is god's discipleship masterpiece It's been used for over 2,000 years to bring God's people to places of great maturity in their lives. Now, the the theme of this book is pretty simple. It's how to know Christ the King as the Lord of your life. The book begins from the very beginning to substantiate that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the King of glory. And it also shows you not only who he is, but how his people learn to follow him as Lord. Now, when we come to Jesus, Jesus developed his people 
very much in the pattern of Jewish rabbis. And I just want you to, just for a minute here, think about how you and I and how our culture develops people. And, and think about it in contrast to how Jesus and rabbis develop them. Now, they had, the rabbis had this pattern. They'd been following it for years. And it had four basic elements to it. When they were developing people, the first thing they did is that they would actually try to identify who was going to be with them. So let me just kind of t- tell you a little bit about what this looks like. The word rabbi means teacher, okay, a highly respected teacher. And there were rabbis all throughout Israel. Some of them hung out in Jerusalem around the temple, and they had others that were more eccentric, um, almost like John the Baptist, okay, and they'd be kind of recluse, and they might be wandering around in the desert. And, what the, and then you had kind of in between those two extremes, you had folks all the way in between. Now, what a rabbi would do is he would go and he would be teaching. Okay, that was one of his primary things he did. He taught if he was an itinerant kind of traveler and he went around from synagogue to synagogue around in Israel. They also functioned down in Egypt where there's about eight to ten million Jews, uh, people that appreciated their ministry, their teaching. They would give them gifts. They would financially support them. And that's kind of what life looked like. And one of the big functions of a rabbi was to teach. Now, each rabbi had kind of his particular take on the Torah, the law, the scriptures. And he would emphasize that, and he had reasons why he, he believed these certain things, and he taught that. But now, we might be very familiar with the teaching aspect of a rabbi, hence his name means teacher, but perhaps his most important role wasn't that of a large group teacher, but his most important role was the role that he had in the lives of his disciples, specifically the students that traveled with him. A student that traveled with the rabbi was called a Talmud. And if you and he had the group of them, that was the Talmudim. Okay, and so these groups of students, they were with their rabbi like 24/7. Now, it was really important that if you were going to be educated and grow and develop, that you were linked in with one of these rabbis. How it usually worked is a prospective student, a younger person, generally males, males would go and make an approach and say, "Can I follow you?" And it was really up to the rabbi whether or not he was going to let you into his exclusive traveling group where he's going to be pouring into you. Now, wealthy families oftentimes wanted their boys to be under top-notch rabbis. And so they would approach them and ask, you know, may my son follow you, study after you, study with you. And when, it, when the rabbi made the decision and said, yes, he would say, you follow me. And with that began this extremely tight relationship. We could almost refer to it as a rabbinical contract, and it had four elements to it. Once he identified that you were going to be with him, it had four elements of how he actually developed his disciples. They followed a particular pattern. The first thing was is that there was instruction. There was teaching. So what the rabbi would do is that he would spend time teaching. While he was teaching, everybody was silent. That traveling group was silent. They listened and they memorized what he said. Oftentimes, he would allow for questions after he made his presentation on whatever he was teaching, although not always. And then he would then leave them, and they would then, in return, this group would start discussing. They would talk about what he said. They might argue. They might say, but you know, this other rabbi says this on this. And they would talk and discuss this to a point where the word was now in them. And that was the whole objective. They would ask and make questions. The rabbi, when he taught, sometimes he didn't explain everything to him. 
He'd give them riddles. He'd give them parables. He'd tell them stories. And he would just leave it to them to wrestle through it and figure it out. He wasn't always just going to spoon feed them. He wanted to develop them to a point where they could think for themselves. So the first thing he had was instruction. But then the second way that rabbis developed their their men was through imitation. When he said, follow me, what was happening is that they were going to follow him in every respect. To the student... These Talmud, what they were trying to do is they were trying to be exactly like their rabbi. They would learn to talk like him, think like him, act like him, respond like him, because they believed that the scriptures were, imper- were coming alive, that he embodied what the scripture was teaching. And so they, were, they wanted a living example. They had it in their rabbi, and so they would follow him. They would ask him questions. They would, they would come to a point where people couldn't recognize the difference between the two of them. And so that's how he did. He would Remember when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? When he said that, he's saying, I am the way. I am the entrance to heaven, and I am the truth. I am the embodiment of the truth of Scripture. I am the final authority. When he said, I am the life, he says, I am the essence of life itself. And so Jesus, as a rabbi, he called these men To experience his life. And the way you do that is by completely uniting yourself with him and you become like your master, which they oftentimes refer to their rabbi as. You walk like him. You talk like him. People, when they saw you, if you were one of the Talmudim, they saw the rabbi. And then they give you a third aspect of that. And, and when you're thinking about that, th- doesn't that start to make sense of the other parts of Scripture? Like, remember when Paul said, be imitators of me as I also imitate Christ. He says, the, when you see Christ-likeness in me, that is something worthy of following because I am following in the footsteps of the Master. Remember he tells, like, uh, Paul writing to Timothy, you saw how I suffer, how I love, how I teach, how I care, how I minister, how I'll be uh, willing to serve to the point of sacrifice. He says, you follow that example. But there was a third aspect of that, of how they taught their disciples. And that was through examination. Okay? Tess wasn't just dreamed up by some sort of school teacher to make your life miserable. The idea is to find out what you know. And so they they would give examinations all the time. But they weren't like paper examinations. He would send them out, and he would send them out to teach or to do certain works, or to, or to act in a certain way, or to lead particular groups. And then he'd bring them back and find out how things went, and what kind of questions they had. And, and he was not afraid to have them fail. In fact, the rabbi saw failure as an opportunity for further growth. Because you know when you learn, really learn things? is when you come face-to-face when you can't. That's when you start asking real good questions. And so he would, he would send them out for periodic examinations. And Jesus did this all the time. Remember when Jesus, he sent his men out into a storm? And they thought, they were, oh, we're going to die out here. You know? And they're, you know, here's these fishermen. And they're like, whoa, these waves are huge. The wind, we're going to perish out here. You know what that was? It was an examination. Jesus asked, hey, where's your faith? Or remember when the big crowd was hungry and Jesus said, you know, yeah, I see you have these 5,000 guys out here and all these women and children. You feed them. <gasps> Whoa, we, we can't do that. You know what that was? It was an examination. Remember when, 
the disciples were trying to put the run on the kids. Remember the children were trying to come to Jesus? And that must have been quite a scene. The disciples, get away, go back. Jesus has no time for little kids. Okay? And then, remember, Jesus had to correct them and say, hey, knock it off. I happen to like children. You see, it was an examination. If they had Jesus' heart, they missed it on the kids. So he had to correct them. There was also, there was one final aspect about how rabbis taught their disciples. And that is that it would always come to a point where he released them. He released them to a point where they in return were now go and make disciples. It was always understood that a part of this like rabbinic contract that there would come to a point where you would be released from the, the master to then go and make disciples on your own. And that is exactly what Jesus does. He goes and he develops and he teaches them. And do you know how this book ends? The Gospel of Matthew ends? I want you to go now and I want you to make disciples of all the nations. I am sending you out. In fact, in John chapter 15, verse 15, he says, I don't call you slaves anymore. I call you friends. Because everything I heard from the Father, I have now given to you. Now you go. And in the case of Jesus... He actually empowers them with his spirit so that they might fulfill and do everything he's asked. And so you see, that is the pattern that is given to us. Not only do you see it in the Hebrew scriptures, but especially in the New Testament. Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.2? Hey, listen, the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so with a rabbi, yes, he taught in large groups. He shaped the minds and the hearts of a lot of people. But his most significant work was that one-on-twelve, that group that he had, his Talmudim, his students. And so I'd like to ask you, starting New Year, are, are you really interested in depth in your relationship with Jesus Christ? If you've been kind of cruising along and kind of floating into the superficial and you're kind of beating your head against the wall and you're like, man, there's something missing. I've been a Christian for X number of years and I don't really think I'm I'm really any farther along than perhaps when I've started. I would like death. I would like to experience the maturity like I see in some of these folks in our church that they've got there's just wisdom. There is a love for Christ. There is a strength. There is a power in prayer. There is a a walking in the spirit. There's an understanding of his word. I want to be a man or a woman like that. Well, if you do, I want to invite you to take a look at the gospel of Matthew, especially in Matthew chapter 17, where you're going to see what does this kind of mentoring look like in real life. You want to see discipleship in action? You want to see how did Jesus develop his disciples? Well, you're going to find it just kind of spelled out here in Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. And the first thing you're going to see is that you're going to see that Jesus was training his men through their failures. Look at verse 14. When they came to the crowd, you remember what's taking place here? We had just come from the transfiguration on Mount Hermon. Jesus was seen in his glory. He was just radiating light. He was seen in the fullness of his deity, and Peter, James, and John witnessed this. And after this amazing and significant event was life-changing for these apostles, 
They come off the mountain and they come off the mountain of glory into the valley of need. And there is an exceptional need here. There is a crowd in this and look, it's taking place here in verse 14. And a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him, and he's saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic, and he is very ill, and he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And so this scene, as Jesus is making his way with Peter, James, and John, they come with this crowd. Now, if, this is, if they're in kind of nearby Caesarea Philippi, most of this crowd is probably Gentile. But and the transfiguration is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three, of, all three of those writers record this significant event right after the transfiguration. Where here we have a dad and his son is literally crazy and demon-possessed. Mark goes into great detail in Mark chapter 9 about what this looked like. This was total chaos. Here we have the disciples. They were experiencing an examination. Jesus gave them a test. Just at the same time, he was actually teaching Peter, James, and John, I want you to see and know who I am. And this test, they failed. They had an earlier, and like in Matthew 10, they had actually been commissioned to go and cast out demons and heal the sick. Remember that? And they had experienced success in this. And now, here is a demon-possessed boy, and they, they, they're incapable of dealing with it. They can't cast out the demon. And there are scribes, Mark tells us, that began arguing with them. You could just see the heated action. The scribes were now belittling and, and arguing with these followers of Jesus, saying, you don't even know what you're talking about. He's a false messiah, and that's why you can't do anything. You've been misled. And they're trying to argue, and yet, we're like, well, we couldn't do anything in this situation. And Mark also records, is at this exact same time that this boy goes into one of these episodes where all of a sudden he's frothing at the mouth, he's breathing deeply, and he starts grinding his teeth, as Mark points out. And at some point, he'll just fall rigid. And Luke, actually, when he records these, these events, he said that the father said that he always is screaming when this happens. And furthermore, he's mute. He can't speak. And so here is a a father. He is completely beside himself. The scribes are arguing with Jesus' disciples. And here's this father going, someone, God, Lord, please have mercy on me. And Jesus is descending from the mountain with three of his men. And that's where you pick it up in verse 14. Here is this man. Likely he's Gentile. We were in Gentile country. He literally, you see what he does? He came up to Jesus and he's falling on his knees. When you've been brought to a point of brokenness, when you're at the end of yourself, when you really need God's help, then you will fall on your knees. And he calls him Lord. He's not merely trying to be polite. He understands this one is God and he is fully capable of having mercy on me. And that's what he asks. He says, verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son. You want to understand where this father is? Imagine if that boy is your son. Do it. Imagine if he's your son. Not somebody else's problem. My son. He has these seizures. And he goes on to explain. He says he is a lunatic. The word literally could be translated moonstruck, okay? So 
Lunar has to do with the moon, right? You guys with me? And so lunatic has the idea that, that the moon is causing this. Now, in the ancient belief system, people in many cultures believe that the moon somehow induced madness or mental illness in a person. So that's where we actually get the word lunatic. It's like moonstruck. And so that's what they believe, that somehow the moon created this scent of this, this madness and mental illness in this boy. And he says, my son, he's a lunatic. He's, he's mad and he is very ill. And so he's got this huge issue where he's like, he's, he just goes crazy. And he probably described the scene because he starts giving Jesus a little bit of the images of what takes place here. He's very ill. He often falls into the fire. See, they would have in their homes, they'd have this little fire pit where they would cook food. And perhaps that boy would be there and then standing there and all of a sudden it would take over. Demon, and then would, who he, this boy was at his mercy, would all of a sudden just start breathing, start frothing at the mouth. He would probably start shaking. He'd start screaming, according to Luke. And then this episode would take place and then he'd literally fall rigid, fall flat. And he would like fall in the fire, which means that he would be burned up. This boy who is at this very present time having one of these episodes, must have been completely disfigured and scarred. And he says he falls into the fire and often into the water. Maybe mom would be taking them, they're washing clothes or getting water. This little boy, he sees, and there's like this like little fish, and then all of a sudden it just take over. And he'd start having this episode. And next thing you know, he'd fall flat into this water, even if it was only a couple inches And he couldn't actually remove himself from it. He would drown. And look what he says. And often into the water. We have to pull him out. Lord, would you have mercy on us? He says, I brought him to your disciples. And they simply could not cure him. And Jesus answered. And if you want to see the depth of the heart of Jesus and how just humbling it must have been for him who has existed throughout all eternity to enter into humanity, into this mess, this madness, this unbelief. And in verse 17, this scene happening, here is this boy. You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus is saying, this is so twisted. That's what that word perverted means. It was used of like clay that had been twisted somehow wrongly and then fired. It was like, this wasn't supposed to be this way. This world, my people, the Jewish people, they haven't even recognized me as my, the Messiah. My disciples, the men I've been investing him in, I called them. I told them, you follow me. Something's completely wrong. Even the father said, I believe Lord, help my unbelief. Here actually, Mark actually records that statement. Help me. And Jesus, remember, he's always been able to just tell angels what to do. His will has always been perfectly executed. And yet when he enters into humanity, he sets aside his divine glory and the exercise of his divine attributes. And he fully enters into humanity in all of its twistedness and all of its wickedness. And here he's encountering a situation where Sin, Satan, has just overrun, brought destruction. And he says, bring the boy to me. And Jesus rebuked him. And the demon came out of him. And the boy was cured at once. You see, Jesus wants to accomplish his father's will. 
this boy be released from this demon and this madness. And he merely speaks. He rebukes and the boy is cured. Now, you could just imagine that this scene here, when this took place, when Mark records, he says, after this happened, it looked like the boy was even dead. It was that violent of a situation. And then he's restored. He says the words, Dad, Daddy. It's like all of a sudden he has life. People around would have been astounded. This was an amazing miracle. The disciples were just like, whoa, what's going on? Because we were unable, and yet before Jesus had given us the power, we had an examination and we failed it. And so, remember how rabbis taught their men? They taught them through failure? Well, look at verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. Let me assure you, they weren't going to ask him publicly on this one. And said, why could we not drive it out? You know, it must have been somewhat of a kind of a glory trip to be one of Jesus' men. Yeah, they, they were starting to understand that this wasn't always going to be popular, but it was certainly powerful to be commissioned and empowered by Jesus. And yet now they were face to face with their own failure and they said, Jesus, why is it that we couldn't drive him out? And Jesus then tells them, look at this in verse 20. And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. I'll tell you why. You encountered a situation that required strength, faith, my power. And your faith, though it exists, it's too little. You have a little faith. And then he goes on to explain, let me tell you, when your faith grows, what can be accomplished? He says, for truly, I say to you, if you have faith, New American says the size of a mustard seed. It really a better translation would just be as a mustard seed. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you would be able to do this. You would be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. Since the problem is you have a little faith. This wasn't the first time. That Jesus actually had told them, you've got little faith. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where he's he's talking to his disciples and said, you're worried about your food and about your clothing. He's saying, hey, I have got you covered, literally. Why do you have such little faith? Remember when they were on that first storm in Galilee? That was the question that he had in the boat. Remember? Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Remember when Peter was walking on the water, which is amazing in and of itself. But when Peter started to panic and he started to sink into those circumstances, that surging wave. You remember what Jesus asked him? Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? See, fear and doubt. That is the enemy of faith. Why? Why is it that you doubted me? I was right here. You wanted to experience my power. You asked me. Say, Jesus, command me to get out of that boat and walk to you. And I did. And you walked on that water through my power. But then you started focusing on the waves and the circumstances and you started sinking. Why is your faith so timid? Why did you doubt? And then actually not long ago, remember, there was a situation where they were worried they didn't have enough bread. This is after the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. And Jesus like, men, 
did you not remember the 5,000? How many baskets did you pick up? Oh, yeah, that's right, 12. And after the feeding of the 4,000? Yeah, seven. He says, why, why are you worried about food, you of little faith? You see, I want you to grow up. I want you to mature. I don't want you to stay inch deep. I want you to have a confidence in me that will, you will be able to do all that I've asked. But let me tell you how this is developed. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, faith is a mustard seed. Remember in Matthew 13, he said a mustard seed, that's the smallest of the seeds that gets planted. Because you know what? It grows up and it's like a tree. It's full of power and gives life. I mean, the birds of the air can make nests in it. But it starts out so small. I want you to grow up. I want that seed of faith to be nurtured, cultivated, and matured. And he says, and you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. And the Jews used this statement about moving mountains. And they were, they was kind of like something that was of incomparable difficulty. They didn't actually think you're going to literally move a mountain, but it was kind of a figure of speech. You could move a mountain because a mountain in the Jewish mind was the most stable thing there was. You'll be able to do that which may seem impossible when you have great faith in me. Now, this faith is, is, comes about in only one way, and Jesus addresses it. He says, I'll tell you, the reason you weren't able to cast out that demon it's because you have a little faith. And I'll tell you how you develop from a little faith to a great faith. I'll tell you how you mature. You find it in verse 21. But this kind does not come, go out except by prayer and fasting. Jesus says, you want to mature? You want to be able to have the strength to do what I've asked you to do? You've got to become a person of prayer. Prayer and fasting, the idea of fasting is you stop eating for a period of time that you might focus your attention on God. It's not dieting. It's not a Weight Watcher sort of deal. It's like, well, I'm just not going to eat so I can do more work or do more email. It is to not eat so you might focus on prayer and being consecrated to God. Now, you might see some brackets and some of your Bibles may not have a verse 21 and you're going, whoa, what's going on here? Let me just kind of tell you what's going on. Verse 21 in some of the manuscripts of Matthew that we have, they actually don't have verse 21 in it, and some of them do. Now, what happened is one of two things. Either as a scribe was copying the Gospel of Matthew, he included 21 because Jesus actually said this, but at some point it accidentally got omitted. The scribes followed the the text that they had so closely that even if something was omitted and they knew it to be there in other texts, they wouldn't put it there. That's one option. The other option is Matthew perhaps didn't record this. I don't actually think this is the case, but they know that Mark did. And Jesus emphasized this only comes out by prayer. And so they inserted it. I happen to think that this was originally in there, but that's why you have the brackets. And I don't want you to get thrown off by that. But Jesus says, you know how you develop depth? You become a person of prayer. A lifestyle of prayer. You see, what happened perhaps for the disciples, Jesus said you got a little faith. It's called self-confidence, and it looks a lot like severe prayerlessness. When you're trusting in yourself to get your own things done, get your own grades, do your own projects, your own ministry, your work, your parenting, how you are as a spouse, when you trust in your own abilities It always looks like little to no prayer. 
And then should it not surprise you when you come face to face with failure? You ever failed as a parent? Come on. Yes? Me? Far too often. Am I the, am I the husband I'm always supposed to be? Don't ask Karina too many questions. All right? Have I uh, tried to do ministry on my own? Yeah. I've been in Bible study situations where you know, I'm busy and I'm like, oh, man, I'll just show up here. I've done, I've, I've led a few Bible studies over the years. I'll just show up. And you kind of open the Bible and, and man, something's not working. They're zoned out. You've got a couple guys sleeping. You're not even making sense in your own head. You're starting to sweat profusely and you're like, oh, man, someone pull a fire alarm or something. I've got to get out of here. You know what's going on? Grant, are you, are you a person of prayer? I see when I'm encountering problems and it's not working right, and I, basically I'm seeing that I'm not responding correctly. I slow down, take a good look at God's word, and find my knees. I discover uh, I'm, I'm slipping in the area of being a man, trusting God, and talking to him about my issues and about what I need to speak upon or talk or as I'm discipling my men. If you're going to do the will of the Lord, we have got to become people of prayer because, you see, friends, it's through prayer that God's work is done. If you want to be involved in the ministry of the master, Jesus is discipling you and his men. He says, you've got to become a person of prayer. You've got to be consecrated and set apart to me. Now, We've all faced failure. I'm not the only failure in this room. Right? You know what failure is? Failure is an opportunity for growth. We've all faced failure. You can fail and then capitulate and then just keep living in this cycle of of bitterness, of failure, of not being able to do what you think God's called you to do. It's frustrating. It's painful. You're hurting people. And you're totally messed up inside. Or you can learn to talk to God as a way of life. You're communing with him. And by the way, it's through prayer that you develop depth in your life. All of us, from Adam to Zerubbabel, wherever you fit in there, whatever your name is, you've come face to face with failure in your parenting and as a spouse and as a student and as a, as a child, in your ministry, at your work. You know, your job. That's your calling. God has his call. Just like I'm called to be a pastor, whatever you are doing, whether you're raising kids or you're running IBM, whether you're working at Baylor or you got a, you're a mechanic somewhere, that is God's calling upon your life. And you're not going to be his man or woman in that place unless you are developing as a person of prayer, because apart from prayer, we're not going to accomplish the will of God. So how does Jesus develop his disciples? Well, you see it right here. He trains them through failures. Let me point out a couple other things here. He also focused them on his death and resurrection. Don't miss his verses 22 and 23. You might think that this is just kind of like randomly thrown in. Jesus is beginning to always focus his followers on his death and his resurrection. Because it's by focusing on his death and resurrection that we grow deep. Verse 22. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, 
The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. This is the second time that Jesus has now started talking about that he's going to be killed. Only he gives them a piece of information he didn't give them the first time. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, he told them basically this. But here he says he's going to be delivered. Here he gives them a piece of information. I'm going to be handed over. Likely, one of you is going to hand me over and I will be killed. What he says here, they're going, I'm going to be delivered to the hands of men. They're going to do what they want. They will kill me. But I will be raised on the third day. But they were deeply grieved. I'm sure they were thinking, well, if we're with Jesus, that might happen to us. They're probably grieved about that. But they didn't want Jesus to go away. They wanted Jesus to kind of stay put. They wanted his kingdom now. What is this dying and the resurrection? They didn't have a category for that. They, like, what, what, how? And so it's almost as if they didn't even hear that. But you see, if we're going to grow in depth, you and I, we need to stay fixed and focused on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. You see, it is through this one single event, through our Savior, that God demonstrates his love. He redeems us and rescues us from our past sin and even our future. But let me just tell you, he rescues us in the present. It's through the cross It's through his resurrection. We don't have to live lives of anger and insecurity and fear and bitterness and and entitlement and insignificance and self-reliance because we have Jesus. And so the Christian is regularly thinking about Jesus, his cross, his death, his resurrection, because it is in our living, risen Savior we have life. And so he's telling them to show his sovereignty. I've got this all under control. This is the way it's going to happen. He is demonstrating I am completely committed to you. I am going to redeem you. But he is directing their focus and the attention of his men onto this particular event, the cross and his resurrection. Do you want to be deep? Do you want to have a sense of security and maturity? Do you want your identity to be in Christ? Regularly think of Jesus, his cross, and his resurrection. Try it this week. Try as many times as you can to think about Jesus, his dying for you, and the fact that he rose again and he's giving you life, resurrected life. And see the difference it makes in your perspective, your understanding of peace, your identity, your sense of well-being. The fact that you can walk through difficulty and realize it doesn't matter how bad things are. I have Jesus and hence I have joy. There's one other aspect of how Jesus develops his people that I want to draw your attention to. And that's found in verses 24 through 27. Not only did he train them through their failures. And he was also focusing them on his death and resurrection. But Jesus was showing them the reality of being citizens of his kingdom. They make their way back to now Jesus' hometown in Capernaum. Okay? So they've kind of come out of Gentile country. They're back up in the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're in Capernaum. And those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Now you're like, what's going on there? 
I mean, are these IRS agents and they found Jesus? He's back from his little vacation getaway or he's going to mount? No, these are not the publicane. These are not like guys like Matthew used to be, the Roman tax collectors. These are actually Jewish tax collectors, and they're collecting the two drachma tax that is used to support the work of the temple. So let me just tell you where this comes from. In Exodus chapter 30, remember, they were supposed to pay this two-shekel tax for the, build, for the tabernacle. It was for its upkeep and for its administration. When they got a temple, they just kept it up. You got this two drachma, and it was about the equivalent of two days' wage. They collected this before Passover. And so about a month before Passover, from, from Jerusalem would go forth all of these folks, these tax collectors. They were Jewish guys working for the Jewish temple, and they would collect the two drachma tax. And every male from the age 20 and over had to pay it. It didn't matter how rich you were or poor, you had to pay the true two drachma tax. And the Romans let the Jewish people do this. And the Jewish people, although they'd been stripped of a lot of things, this was a sense of national pride. This was the, our tax for our temple, for our people, for our guys. We're going to pay this. They hated the Romans and the Roman taxes. But they were going to pay this one. It was a source of national pride. And they collected a lot of money. I mean, you got 8 to 10 million Jews living in Egypt. They went down there. They collected before Passover, about a month before. They'd show up. They'd be in all the little towns, all the cities. They'd be collecting this tax. And so in Capernaum, it's getting close to Passover. Jesus shows up. And here are some folks that are waiting for him, these tax collectors. He almost can see that this is a real setup by the folks down in Jerusalem. Namely, the Sanhedrin, the rulers. Jesus had made a statement. I am greater than the temple. They came unglued. What are you talking about? And so, it's tax time. Does your master, so they come to Peter. I don't think they have guts enough to come to Jesus. But they find one of his key guys. There's Peter. He's walking around. He's probably exploring the food court. You know what I'm saying? And there he is. He's approached. Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And Peter, what are your leader, man? You got to you might make a call. You're not going to go. I don't know. Right. Got to make an answer. So he says, yes, just stop it right up there. Well, he says, yes. Now, he probably Jesus likely paid taxes. Don't get the idea like, oh, you know, he didn't pay taxes. No, he fulfilled all righteousness. I think he paid the Roman taxes and he paid the Jewish tax, this two drachma tax. And so he saw that. He's like, yeah, Jesus pays the tax. He does it. Yes. But remember where Peter just came from. He just came from the transfiguration moment. He was on Mount Hermon. He sees who Jesus is. Jesus is not just a man. He's the son of the living God. Hear the voice from heaven where the father said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's radiating light. Moses and Elijah are speaking to him. About his departure. And like, wait a second. Why is the king of the universe paying taxes? This, this doesn't make sense. So he's, he's got to be wrestling with these thoughts. He just flat out tells him yes. And now he's going, you know, I think I'm done at the food court. I'm going to go find Jesus again. So he goes on and he's going right back home. He's going to find Jesus. And look at this. And when he came into the house, you, you could just see it in Peter's face, man. He's thinking about this pretty deeply. What am I going to say to Jesus here? And Jesus speaks first. Do you see that in verse 25? Jesus is all-knowing. He knows about every conversation. And he came into the house, and Jesus spoke to him first, saying, Hey, what do you think, Simon? Whoa, yeah, yeah I'm thinking, what, what, hey, what do you think, Simon? 
From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And Peter's probably going, what? How did he know us? I was thinking about, does Jesus pay taxes? How? And then, then Jesus asked Peter this question, you know, who, who do the rulers get taxes from? Do they tax themselves? They tax their own kids? No. Because whether you were an emperor or a pharaoh or a king, you didn't tax your family. You know who you tax? You tax your subjects. You tax the strangers, right? They paid for your family. You live good. They paid for your government, your military. You taxed them. That's how it worked. But you don't tax your kids. You don't tax yourself. And so he asked them this question here. He wants, Peter's like, uh, verse 26, he says, well, you know, from strangers. And then Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. This is real important. Jesus is showing them, hey, listen, if you're a son of the king and you're in his kingdom, you're exempt. What he's doing here is Jesus is showing that in the new covenant, the Old Testament law and its covenant practices are no longer going to bind his people. They're free from the two drachma tax. They're no longer under the law. They're going to experience the freedom of being what like Galatians chapter 6, 2 says, under the law of Christ. And he says, well, then Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. But verse 27, however, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. And I want you to take that and give it to them for you and me. Here's Peter. He's really not said anything about the fact that he just said, yeah, Jesus pays his taxes. He's going to pay the two drachma tax. Jesus, he knows the whole situation. He uses it as a teaching moment. And then he tells them, I want you to go throw a hook. Now, Peter was a commercial fisherman. Do commercial fishermen use like little lures? The answer to the question, no. They use nets. They want to catch more than one fish. And, you know, sometimes it's hard, unless you're out in Jones or something like that, to catch a fish with a little lure. Okay? But he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go, and I want you to find, get your little hook. I want you to throw it out there, and you're going to catch a fish immediately. The first one you do, you open up its mouth, and there is going to be a shekel. And there's going to be that coin in there, and you go use that to pay for both of us. And because that, is, that was the equivalent of about four days' wages, and that's how Jewish men usually paid this tax, they paid it together, you're going to throw a hook, and inside that fish's mouth. Now, that, there are other incidents of which a coin like that could be found in a fish's mouth, not very likely, and not very likely to throw in a hook and immediately catch that. You see, Jesus is demonstrating not only his omniscience, but his omnipotence. He can create that kind of miracle. And yes, he's going to pay that tax, but he's going to do it in such a way that shows, indeed, he is the king. You see, think about that temple. That temple, those sacrifices, they were to him. They pictured his sacrifice. Jesus said, I'm greater than the temple. If there was one tax Jesus didn't need to pay, it would be this one. He does it, though, so these guys don't stumble because he doesn't want this to be the fighting point. He has a mission. He has come to redeem his people from their sin. And so he says, go. You know the lesson. We're exempt. But so they aren't going to stumble around on this one. We're going to pay it. But we're going to do it in a supernatural way. And so they do. Here's something pretty interesting. In the excavations of Peter's house, and most archaeological scholars agree that they have identified Peter's house in Capernaum. In his house, under a tile, they have found several hooks. Perhaps it was just a visual reminder to Peter of the miraculous power 
and the eternal truth of Jesus. Friends, Jesus wants his people to grow and to go deep. He doesn't want us staying on the superficial. And so that is why we have this. Jesus is serious about developing maturity in his people. So what is your vision for your life personally? Do you have a vision of depth of relationship with God, of just a great love, a sense of security and freedom in Christ, walking in the spirit, discernment, an understanding of his word? Friends, I hope that each one of you individually do, because, friends, if it's going to be a reality for Fellowship Bible Church that we are a church that is deeply in love with Christ, overflowing with his grace, accomplishing his, his work in our city, in our community, and around the world, whether we're touching the lives of the Njara Indians or God is sending us off to work in Haiti or Rwanda, or wherever that might be, we need to be deep. And that is what Jesus is after. He wants to present every person complete, teleos, mature in him. And how does he do it? He does it through teaching us through our failures, focusing us on his death and resurrection. And he's showing us the reality of being in his kingdom. So, friends, we've had instruction from the Lord himself. He gives us imitation. There are people in our lives that are truly walking in the way of the master But in a few minutes after communion, when you walk out those doors, it's examination time. Will you be able to put in play by the power of his spirit that which he's called you to do? Walk in the spirit, pray without ceasing, and live by faith. I'm going to pray here, but I'm going to ask the men if they would come and prepare us for communion. And let us take a real good heart check as to where we are at with him. Lord, I want to thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture as we get to see firsthand Jesus taking his men deep. And Lord, I pray that that would be a reality for each of us and for all of us at fellowship, that we would not settle for status quo, and we would not just feel like, well, we've got a few things going and, and we have some sense of understanding who Jesus is and a few Bible verses, but that We want to be fully mature where we are to a place where we are going and making disciples just like Jesus asked. Only you can do this, Lord. You know, in ourselves, we're completely incapable. So we trust you. And Lord, I ask now that as we partake in communion together, that this would be a time of drawing ever so close and thinking deeply of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we would develop a lifestyle of prayer, and that we'd realize that even our failures Yes, we can confess our sin and we are cleansed so that we might grow in grace. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.